0: Hello, and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated.
1: I'm Matt Karasimovich, a PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, reviving my laptop that was previously dead
0: last episode. <laughs> <laughs> Just in time for the important things in life. Do I mean you're TAing? No, I mean our podcast. The
1: podcast, that's what's primary in my life. <laughs>
0: And I'm Cameron Lalana. I attended Ren Fair this weekend and got to. I was I was as, going as a monk, and I got to take a picture with a shirtless jouster while I held um, a Ukrainian icon <laughs> in a full garb, which is has been uh, the highlight of the of the last couple of weeks. Making That's a lot there. There was like like five hundred women trying to cut pictures of this guy, and then just me dressed as a monk holding an icon, being like, "Hey, man, I liked your jousting in Seattle." I was. From- <laughs> Rooting for the French then, but now I'm rooting for the Scottish because, obviously, you're not wearing a shirt and that makes you a better jouster. Anyway, here's an icon. I'm
1: mostly confused about how many Renfairs you've been to. Am I reliving <laughs> the same day?
0: I <laughs> Not impossible.
1: Feels like sometimes. Well, anyways, this is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we're going to be taking a look at the father of Russian literature, Alexander Pushkin, and his historical novel, The Captain's Daughter.
0: And a huge thank you to our newest patron, Drew. If you want to say in what we're going to be reading next, head on over to patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. For as little as $3 a month, you can keep your favorite Russian literature podcast running and join in on fun events like movie nights on Discord. If you're not interested in Patreon but still want to help us out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com.
1: Yeah, you really got to get on the email list if you're not. That's where we're going to send out our reading list for the end of the year. So everything that we're going to be reading up until the end of December is going to be going out pretty soon. So get on the email list if you're not already. What are you doing if you're not? You know, it's ridiculous. What are you doing? Ridiculous. Not
0: finding out about what we're reading. That's what. That's what. Yes, uh, but before we get into the reading today, Matt, what are you drinking tonight?
1: I can't remember if I've drank this on the podcast before or not. I feel like I did, but I had leftovers, so I Mm. will drink it again. I'm drinking a Devil's Advocate. It is brewed by Church Street Brewing here in Illinois. And it is a Belgian-style ale, and yes, I picked it up because I like the artwork, and also it is a 9% beer, so for the novelty of that, I have purchased it, and will consume it on the show.
0: Nice. Well, we're twinning, because tonight I'm drinking La Fine du Monde, which is a uh, triple Belgian ale, but more importantly, also 9%, so we're we're on the same page here. All
1: right, well, this will be a train wreck, probably.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, that's what editing is for.
1: Good thing good thing yeah so the captain's daughter
0: i wish she? okay by the end of the book uh real real touch and go there at some points
1: you know the worst part about reading this was um Reliving a moment of my childhood, uh, my dad really liked country music, and that's unfortunately what I had to listen to growing up. A good portion of my life, and you know, there's some song stuck in the back of my head about falling in love with a farmer's daughter, and all I could think about was <laughs> falling in love with the captain's daughter. And so I have the tune, but <laughs> none of the lyrics, nor the the country music man's name uh, back there. So that was fun. Um,
0: I know what you're talking about. I hate that I know yeah, what, what song you're, you're you're talking about. but um yeah Yeah, um (laughs) before we get to the summary matt you've got a little bit of background on this for us
1: yes i have a a little bit of background because as i mentioned this is a historical novel which was kind of a if you will a bit of a, a trend with some of our big 19th century authors uh tolstoy will do it several times obviously in War and Peace pretty big one uh he has another book haji Murad where he does kind of a sort of similar thing and just kind of a historical trend of uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more critically later but for now we'll say a reimagining of history as it was uh, uh earlier Russian history and this interplays really interestingly with some of the things that I have to talk about in our In in my discussion section that I will lead, uh, (laughs) in my true (laughs) TA nature. Uh, But I wanted to talk a little (laughs) bit about this guy, Pugachev, and his rebellion, which took place between 19... Nope, not 19. Take a sip. Between 1773 and 1775. Now, Pugachev, generally speaking, is not, well, not from what I would say, very fondly remembered... Uh, Throughout Russian literature. So, this is an interesting portrayal uh, by Pushkin in The Captain's Daughter, which deals with Pugachev's rebellion and Pugachev and Catherine the Great as uh, not only historical figures, but also literary figures as he reimagines them, Uh, which is really fascinating to see how this kind of all works out. And I'm sure we will discuss at length soon. But as I said, between 1773 and 75, this takes place a little bit after Catherine the Great. Uh, t- takes power, queen, uh, in 1762. Uh, Pugachev's rebellion is a kind of loose term for a series of re- of rebellions that were taking place around this time. There were over 50 peasant revolts going on kind of around this time period, and Pugachev does actually a, pr- a pretty effective job at kind of rallying a really weird, strange, not, not strange group of people, but a strange a mixture of people, I guess you could say. So he's he's leading uh, the Cossacks, he's leading serfs, he's leading old believers. So he unites them uh, in the name of uh, Peter the uh, Third. You may recognize him as the czar that Catherine the Great takes power from, uh, and he is kind of known, I guess historically, as being uh, an imitator, like an imitator czar, because he, you know, was not. Peter the third uh so that, that um so he's, he's <laughs> basically staking an illegitimate claim on the throne and he's using this kind of self-mythology to legitimize what it is that he's doing which is leading in actually quite frankly an enormous rebellion uh, against the russian empire and the russian empire did a really bad job responding to this as we will kind of talk about in the book um Mostly uh, in addition to just a mixture of logistical problems of, you know, having an army in the 1770s of just army is hard to move in 1770 when you have tens of thousands of people and not really a good way to move them anywhere. Um, So they're slow. They're not they're not great. You know, they're an old timey army. So they're you know, they're OK. But in addition to just kind of not being a super, super great army. Um, they also they kind of didn't appreciate, I think, the scale of the rebellion because it kind of swelled quite quickly in in that time. And that was because uh, Pugachev was super popular with the people with whom he was revolting. He actually de- declared an end to serfdom under his reign, obviously an illegitimate one. Uh, but you may note that serfdom was not abolished until actually uh, almost about 100 years later in 1861. So Pugachev takes the side of and adopts many of similar liberal reforms that peter the 3rd had attempted to implement in his short couple months stint as russian tsar uh, also notably here uh, would be remiss not to mention the resistance from a lot of the indigenous peoples on the eastern frontier of the russian empire that were the empire was attempting to assimilate and they did not particularly like that as you might imagine and so it's it's mentioned specifically in in the story uh, but a lot of different groups from the eastern frontier of the empire are also kind of joining with this this discontent. And so there's a little bit of history for you on Pugachev's Rebellion and why this is going to be a super interesting story.
0: Yes, thank you for that excellent background, which will be very useful for understanding a large part of this story. You, This is one of those ones where you really do have to have a background in a bit of Russian history for it to make much sense otherwise this is going to feel very not grounded for you we start off our story at the birth of our hero peter so peter grows up more or less homeschooled. he spends the first 12 years of his life being taught by a, a servant in the family who is very reliable but not particularly well educated before the father gets him a tutor who a french tutor who is not very good at his job mostly he just kind of gives the kids some books or a map and then falls asleep uh drunk which goes on for a couple of years before his father catches them in the act and sends the guy packing, and Peter spends the rest of his years until the ripe old age of 16 just kind of playing with the, the peasant kids. He's not, not well-educated, uh, which some people have uh, made a lot of or little of in analyzing Peter's character. At 16, the father, seeing his son is at this old age and not yet doing anything, uh, also has not had an, an education yet, decides that now's the time to send him off to the army. Initially thinking, we'll send him off to Petersburg, which the son, Peter, is really excited for. He then thinks, no, that's going to be too urban. You'll not real get the real lessons that I want you to get out of the army. I'm going to send you to Orinsburg. Here's a letter. There's a guy I know there. Take it to them. Good luck.
1: Oh, come on, Dad. But can't I go to Petersburg instead?
0: can I go to the center of, of, like, Russian culture instead of um the very edge of our empire?
1: Instead of a place that have a couple bags of sand piled up and they call it a fortress. <laughs> please, could I?
0: <laughs> he sets off with the person who had originally taught him for his first 12 years of his life, Savyevich, uh, who is a, a loyal servant of, of his father, although not particularly imaginative. And he begins to experience the finer things in life, such as immediately getting fleeced of 100 rubles <laughs> by um, another soldier named Zurin, who on his first night away from his parents, Zurin's like, well, I got to teach you what it's like to be a soldier now that you're, you know, you're out traveling. And he, he gets him very drunk and then uh, plays pool with him. And he's like, hey, let's we'll play some small bets. I'll teach you how to play. Not a big deal. We, you know, it's just not right to play for free. And then he <laughs> fleeces the kid for 100 rubles, which Savievich is not happy uh, the kid is lost, but uh, attempting to show his control over someone who is technically his servant. Peter demands that Savievich gives him this huge sum of money to give it to this guy. And, and they, they take off, and the kid's proven to be very headstrong because, again, he's out there, he's free for the first time, and he really wants to assert a sense of control, even over Uh, Well, especially over his servants, even though they seem to know a lot better than him. He feels a little bit bad about being mad at Savievich and he wants to make up with him, but he's also trying to have a sort of sense of dominance over this man when they are traveling along, still going to Orensburg, and Savievich looks out and says, hey, I think there's going to be a storm soon. And the driver says, yeah, I think probably we should turn back to the last town. Uh, Our our young friend Peter says, no, it'll be fine. We can get to the next town. I don't want to lose all our progress. And uh, bing, bang, boom, they get lost in a storm and are going to have to sleep out in the cold in the middle of a snowstorm, completely lost for a night. Bada
1: bing, bada boom. This happens in literally (laughs) every one of Pushkin's stories. Does it? Somebody gets, I mean, maybe not everyone, but quite frequently somebody gets stuck in a blizzard.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, a common experience at the time.
1: Don't mess with the Russian winter.
0: (laughs) You do not. Uh, Something that many armies and our friend Peter could stand to learn. (laughs) Peter, again, is is not one to take this lying down. So he says to his driver, keep on going. And the driver says, but sir, I don't know where the road is. And Peter says, that doesn't matter. And the guy says, okay, I guess you are the master. So let's go. Luckily for them, while they are completely lost, they happen upon a, a vagrant, a traveler on the road who they they give a lift to. And the guy says, here, go this way. I, I know how to get through this, this storm thank you for picking me up and he takes them to a small town and they stay in an inn which seems okay but there's obviously a, a sort of kinship between this this vagrant and the owner of the inn peter rejects savyevich's discomfort with the situation but even that he's kind of like keeping an eye around and he describes the place as some kind of thieves den which i'm sure the the innkeeper, innkeeper probably didn't entirely appreciate of in his fine establishment after he'd just taken this young man in and giving him tea but you know such is life upon leaving the next day um Peter really wants to give this this, uh, unknown man a gift for helping them get to town, but after losing 100 rubles, he promised Savjevich that he wouldn't spend money without his explicit permission, and and Savjevich does not want to give this guy anything, so Peter turns to the guy and says, hey, you know, let me give you my my coat, and he gives him this nice or hair fur coat, which he's just gotten, it's new, and the guy's like, wow, that's cool, thank you, and they take off thinking no more about these series of events, but of course... Uh, not to foreshadow anything, but there are no coincidences in this book.
1: No, there's not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so he arrives in the city of Orensburg, and he meets the general who his father has written the letter to. And after initially trying to trick him when, when the, the generals leave reading the letter, uh, it's it's a, a German, um, ethnic German-Russian who has not entirely mastered the Russian language. And uh, when he is reading the letter and asks Peter, hey, what is to treat my son with headshot gloves mean? The son says, it means to treat me very delicately and tenderly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the guy at general says, oh, okay, good to know. I will, I'll treat you with tenderness before reading the letter onward and finding out that that is in fact, as Peter's father clarifies, the exact opposite of what he means. And so the guy's like, ah, oh, you're trying to get one over on me. Well, I've got just the place for you. This place called Belogorsky Fortress. It's out in the middle of absolutely nowhere. There's like 50 soldiers there. Good luck. <laughs> and he heads out from Orensburg, which is already on the edge of edge of um, the Russian Empire, to Belogorsky Fortress, which is in the middle of nowhere. It really cannot be stressed how in the middle of nowhere this place is. There he meets the, uh, the family and the, the titular captain. Uh, captain muranov he meets his wife, um, Veselisa Yegorovna, who is just as much of a leader, in fact, much more of a leader than the captain is, um, as well as the captain's daughter, Maria. Hey,
1: that's the name of the book.
0: Could this character be important? Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Along with that is is a class of greater characters. The only one really worth mentioning is uh, Shvabrin, who... Initially connects with this this young man because he's a little bit more cultured. He speaks a bit of French, which uh, our friend Peter also does. From he learned a little bit from his French tutor, not a lot, just a little bit. And they initially become friends. As Matt alluded to earlier, the Russian army was not super well trained, and this is a this is showcasing that. Occasionally, the officers make the soldiers drill, but for the most part, uh, Peter is literally just hanging around, reading poetry, translating French poetry, and writing his own. And slowly falling in love with Maria, the captain's daughter. He writes some poetry to her and shows it to Schwabrin, who says, This is trash. This is absolute trash. Uh, you should throw it away. Because Peter is 16, maybe 17 at this point, he takes mortal offense to this and challenges Schwabrin to a duel. Which is, of course, banned, and if, actually that's the reason why Schwabrin is here in the first place. He killed a man in a duel, which is not supposed to be happening. But they say, okay, sure. And they, they get ready and they're gonna they go to the forest and they're gonna have a duel, but because of the loose lips of another soldier, uh, Vasilisa Yegorovna finds out and throws them both in the brig, confiscating their weapons and telling them, you know, shame on you both. Um, you know, of course, it's, she specifically lectures Peter and says, you know, it's okay for it's okay for Shvabrin. He's a he's he's not a Christian, but you you're still young. <laughs> Shvabrin doesn't believe in God, so it's, and obviously it's okay for him to duel, but you you could be turned around.
1: Yeah, it should be worth mentioning the only way that somebody from Peter's pedigree would be at this fortress was if he was kicked out of where he previously was for doing something <laughs> stupid like dueling. That's about it. Yeah.
0: So they immediately don't learn their lesson, and as soon as they have a chance, they duel again in the middle of the night. Actually, our friend Peter, who is a, a talented swordsman, uh, through practicing with uh, his French tutor, who was apparently not entirely useless, is actually about to beat Shvabrin when Savjevich comes running to help his his master and... When when uh, Peter is distracted, Shabrin stabs him. Several days later, Peter wakes up and he sees Maria's face, and she's been crying over him. And you know, she says, "Oh, thank God, it's been five days. We thought we were gonna lose you there." And then Peter is so overcome with emotion at seeing her there when he wakes up that he, not immediately, but very soon after waking up, uh, proposes to her, <laughs> um, and she says yes. Ish. Yes. Ish, Ish, with some with some qualifiers, which we'll get to in a second. But I just wanted to say, what a terrifying time to be alive. That that I mean, you could you can still do this today, but the fact that this was not considered like, wow, that's that's wild. That's a wild thing you've just said. I'm gonna leave the room now. We've known each other for like a month, and you've just woken up from being stabbed. Maybe in my honor. Uh, that's a lot. That's a lot to deal with. Uh, the fact that this is just the a, a, like a, a serious offer is wild to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: What a terrifying time to be alive that would be. Um, so, in order for them to get married, they have to get all their parents' consent first. And they don't really tell her parents, but they're not uh, not making any... They're not trying to hide the fact that uh, they are quite close. So they're like, well, you know, her parents aren't doing anything right now, so they're probably going to say yes. And Peter writes to his father and says, you know, I want to marry Maria, um, Mironov, please give me your blessing.
1: She's also, like, really poor, too. Yes. So... They know they're going to say yes, because her mom's already been hinting at it at dinner. Like, ah, <laughs> oh, we could only get her a good match. Who doesn't care about money, wink wink?
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, I, that, that is, I guess, uh, something that I've not been emphasizing enough, but Matt has been bringing up several times that our friend Peter is quite, quite highborn, which is something to, to note for later in the story. In the meantime, while they're waiting for the return of that letter with, um, you know, bitten fingernails. Peter finds out that Shvabrin had also been trying to get Maria to marry him. And he realizes, oh, that's why Shvabrin was was dumping on my poetry. That makes me even madder. I, I'd fight him again, but <laughs> we already did that. And eventually they get the letter back, not from uh, his, Peter's mother, as he was hoping, but from his father, who has found out about the duel. And he is not happy. Capital letters, not happy. And says, you may not marry this Maria. In fact, I would like you to even not be at Beligorsky Fortress anymore. Clearly, this has not been a good influence on you. Um, You need to leave this place. Although the order for him to leave does not actually come. And uh, Maria, although he would like to still get married, she says, I can't do it without your parents' consent. And, you know, you must get that first. And she begins to spend less and less time around him and leading to kind of fall into a bit of a, a bit of a funk. He loses all passion for things, does not leave his room at all, stops reading, stops doing anything, which is uh, uh, some affairs that only become turned around when the Pugachev uprising, or at least the most recent rebellion, comes to their area. Captain Mironov is informed that uh, by the commanders at Orensburg that uh, Pugachev's forces have been kind of sweeping through the area and have been taking many fortresses, in the region you should you should watch out and they're like okay that's probably you know we're we're, we're the russian army uh, of course we're going to be fine even if there are only a hundred of us we've got a cannon first of all and we've got these cossack soldiers um although they immediately follow up with not that cossacks are worth anything directly in the face of one of the cossack soldiers and like yeah no offense and the guy's just like uh eh, sure uh i'm not taking any offense wink wink nudge nudge
1: it's fine i'm gonna betray you in 15 pages so
0: fine. <laughs> 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 while they were getting prepared they've Very suddenly find out late one night, Pugachev's forces are almost upon you. You need to get ready right now. And so they get, well, I would say they get going. They don't. They have a nice dinner and they say, I guess tomorrow morning we will, you know, send uh, Maria to away to another, to Orensburg where she'll be safe. And then we'll have a nice little battle here. And then they just go to bed. The Next morning, Pugachev's forces arrive earlier than expected. Um, and they are not ready for a fight, so no one's left yet, they aren't really all that prepared, and they found out that in the night, the Cossack soldiers have left the fortress and are now with Pugachev's forces. Uh, Pugachev's forces rush the fortress, um, and the Russian soldiers have time to get off a cannon shot and, st- and start to-, to shoot a bit, but they are almost immediately overwhelmed. Like, it is, I think, maybe two pages from battle start to losing.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's basically no battle.
0: Yeah, it's it's yeah. they get off like one cannon shot, and I think that's maybe the entirety of the actual combat. So the fortress is taken. All the officers are now being brought before our erstwhile czar, pretender to the throne, Emelian Pugachev, who is sitting up upon a nice regal chair now that his forces have time to set these things up, and he, he brings the officers up to the stage, and he begins to hang the leaders of the, the officer class there. One by one, uh, Captain Miranov is hanged, his... is. Uh, subordinates are hanged, and our, our friend Peter is brought up before the stage. This man, Pugachev, looks down at him, and before anything happens, Fabrine appears on stage with a new haircut and whispers in Pugachev's ear. And Pugachev nods and says, Okay, hang him. What a jerk. What a jerk. Of what course it was Fabrine.
1: <laughs> of course it was. <laughs>
0: So Peter's being brought up to the stage when suddenly Saviovich runs out and he throws himself at Pugachev's feet and says, "Please, please take pity on this this boy. He's he's really he was not participating at all. He's just a child. He's a highborn of Russian society, which not a good thing to say probably to this guy, but no. be that as it may." And Pugachev looks down at at this old man and says, "Oh, you know, what? actually, let him go." They continue to hang officers who will not bend the knee, but after they get through the officer class, they kind of say to all the soldiers, "You know." Get down on one knee and swear fealty to me, and you'll all be take either taken prisoner or become soldiers with me. And, and by and large, they do. Uh, to cap off this this festival of violence, Vasilisa Yegorovna runs out to uh, yell at them about her husband, and she is immediately struck dead, uh, leaving Maria alone in the world. So, uh, Realizing that Maria's alone, once everyone leaves, Peter runs to the Mironovs' house and finds only Palashka, their servant. And she says, "Maria's safe. Don't worry. She's at Father Gerasim's house. Who is the, the priest, uh, a relation of yours, I presume?"
1: Oh, sorry, that was to me. <laughs> I was yeah, lying, still doing the dialogue. <laughs> oh, that's what my opening was gonna be. Oh, <laughs> Makarismovich, distant relative of Father Gerasim.
0: Right. <laughs> P I'll, I'll leave it in as a as a blooper. Please. <laughs> <laughs> and Peter says oh no that's just where Pugachev went to have dinner so he runs over and the, the priest and Father Gracie's wife comes out and says hey you, you gotta get out of here uh, I'm pretending that Maria is my, is my niece so we're all cool Peter says okay he goes back and Savievich is sitting there like freaking out and says do you know who that was Peter says Pugachev? yeah of course I know who it is and Savievich says no the coat did you not recognize the coat that was the vagrant we picked up that one night Peter's like oh Oh, huh. Okay. Oh. <laughs> and at that point, uh, one of the the soldiers for Pugachev runs up and says, "Hey, Pugachev wants your presence." So Peter goes and he sits down to dinner, and he, it seems like his presence is not even wanted. He's just hanging out while the rest of them sing songs and drink and eat. And as everyone leaves, Pugachev says, "Hey, come over here," and they begin to talk. They have a very interesting dialogue where Poochov reveals how he didn't even realize who Peter was until Savyavich threw himself down at his feet. And then he realized that this had been the boy who'd shown him kindness and says, like, hey, so uh, I know earlier you're kind of shocked. So I didn't make you bend the knee to me. But uh, do you accept me as your czar or do you think I'm a pretender? Peter, who at this point has not been shown to be super deaf with words, comes up with a new skill very suddenly of, of dissembling and says, hey, you're a smart man. You know that if I tell you, I think you're the czar, that I'm just lying to tell you what you want to hear. And the guy says, interesting. Okay, go on. And Peter says, my fate is in your hands. Um, either you can condemn me or you can pardon me. Um, but you know, you understand what I think and I understand what you think. And I, I know who you are as, as the leader of this rebellion. And if you let me go, I'm going to go back to Orensburg. I can't serve you. And, and that's where I stand. And Pugachau was like, okay, you know what? Not what I wanted to hear, but that's sincere. You can go. Peter runs back to Orensburg to tell them the news of the Belgorsky fortress's fall, and they, of course, deftly leap into action and immediately decide to do nothing about it.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. They spend the next couple of months getting ready, which Peter feels terrible about, until suddenly Pukatav's forces arrive and lay siege to Orensburg, and it is not going well for the townsfolk. Um, they, they have battles until one day, um, when in the middle of a battle, Peter's out there fighting and actually runs across the Cossack leader, the leader of the Cossack forces in the garrison. And he's actually pretty happy to see the guy. And the guy's like, Oh, hey Peter, what's up? And they exchange pleasantries in the middle of the battle. (laughs) Or towards the end of the battle, I think their Pugachev's forces are retreating for the day. And he is like, Oh, Polashka wanted me to give you this letter and in the letter, Peter finds out that Shvabrin has now been put in charge of Belogorsky and intends to marry Maria by force. And he kind of goes out of his mind with anger and he after trying to get requisition from troops and being denied, leaves in the night to go to Belogorsky to to rescue Maria. Along the way, he's captured by Pugachev's forces who bring him to Pugachev, and upon holding counsel, he basically explains what's going on. And Pugachev's like, Well that's not cool. Let's go to Belogorsky. Let's let's go see what's going on. Let's go save your um let's go save your betrothed. Uh, which is not what, how anyone expected that to go, at least of all the advisors, really.
1: No, no, not at all.
0: So they so they ride off to Belogorsky and find that Shvabrin has locked Maria in a room intending to marry her. And even Pugachev is like, yo, that's that's not okay, my guy. Not in exactly in those terms, but
1: I think if you translate it, that is basically what he says, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the more literal translation would say, Hey my guy, what's up?
0: <laughs> anyway, he makes Shrubberine let her go and says, I'm not gonna take you take your leadership away from Belogorsky away from me right now, but I'm gonna remember this next time you screw up. Peter and Maria, they uh now they leave. They 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 slip out under the cover of darkness and they head out initially intending to go to peter's parents house but while they're traveling they get arrested by russian guards and uh while they're being thrown in jail because they it's not that they are with the Pugachev's forces peter runs into the 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 leadership and says hey you know i'm i'm on your side and uh, uh luckily for him who does he find the guy from the beginning of the book who fleeced him for 100 rubles. And the guy's overjoyed to see him. And, and Peter explains what's going on. Um, and the guy's, oh, yeah, stay with me. Send Maria back to wherever you're sending her and, and let's fight on. It, they they spend many months in campaign together until Pugachev is defeated. In fact, Pugachev is defeated far off at this point. And they're beginning to celebrate. He's going to see Maria again. Until Zarin, his commanding officer, receives a letter. which says, hey, um, you should arrest. You should arrest Peter. He's actually a traitor. He's he, cavorted with Pugachev, and so Peter is, and he's put under lock and key. And because he does not want Maria to be exposed as part of this, he does not want her in front of the in front of the tribunal. He denies the only witness who could, uh, you know, talk about his innocence. And Maria, who at this point is living with Peter's parents, uh, finds out what's happening and immediately understands what's going on. And she rushes off to Petersburg in order to try to save him by throwing herself at the the mercy of the court. As luck would have it, and as it does in stories like this, she actually manages to get the ear of uh, someone in Catherine's court and explains her the situation. And, and Catherine personally commands Maria to come before her to hear her story and says, I will release, I, I will release Peter. And in fact, I'm going to give you uh, a bunch. I'm going to take care of you from now on uh, because, now, because your parents sacrificed so much for our country and then it goes into an editor's note at this point saying oh after this this is where the manuscript ends but we um but after this peter and maria going to get married they live happy lives i got this stuff from their grandkids and so on before moving on to an interesting interesting edition which is part of chapter 13 which is the right the chapter where peter gets arrested and it's it's, it's introduced by the editors. This was supposed to be included in Chapter 13, but it was not. And it's a bit more of an action-filled scene where Peter goes back to see his parents, who are now being held by Shvabrin, and they almost all die. And while well, Shvabrin locks them in a granary uh, before Peter and his father heroically rush out and wound Shvabrin, and Savievich has, has slipped out in the midnight and gotten Zurin to come with, bring the cavalry to save them all. And that, that's the end of Shvabrin, And that is The Captain's Daughter.
1: So how did you like the tale?
0: I'm going to reveal a huge blind spot in my reading of Russian literature. I have not read Pushkin before.
1: Oh, no. I know. <laughs> not even poetry?
0: Not even... Okay, actually, no, that's not true. I, I used to translate poetry to practice my Russian skills, but I've not, I've not gone after his larger works. This sure. was surprisingly interesting. I don't usually like older literature. Um, that's just not in my forte or in my interest, but this was... Su- surprisingly interesting to me especially as we get to the later half of the book the first half was a bit dry setting up his life as as some older books intend to be but especially as we get into his relationship uh, there's a lot of a lot of peter's relationship to Pugachev, which i kind of cut out for the interest of time but that's a really really interesting relationship they have and i find that really engaging even yeah. you know yeah. 200 years down the line as a character piece which i liked a lot this is this is not your first time approaching this work though
1: no, I, I read it once as as an undergrad and then I yeah. suggested it for the podcast because I forgot it was so long and I was like, that's a big quick one we can read real quick. And then I was like, oh no, it's like 150 pages. <laughs> um, but it ended up being okay. Um, yeah. I liked it more on my second read.
0: Now you've got more context to appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I thought it was funnier actually the second time I read it.
0: Hmm. Funnier how?
1: Well, so when I was... When I was a wee young undergrad, like two years, three years ago, I had a professor who was great, uh, but he really insisted that a lot of 19th century Russian literature really kind of, you know, was anchored in this idea of fatalism which is, you know, very present in 19th century Russian literature, especially in Pushkin. And there's so many lines I marked on this one where the narrator is like, and then my life was fated to, I was fated to spend my life at the Belogorsky fortress. But upon a second read, I actually think he's mocking that attitude. I found it very sarcastic in a lot of places. Hmm. I just, um, I don't know. I thought the narrator was very whimsical, actually. Um, I like the translation I was reading. Pick it up for yourself on our affiliate links on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. Uh, <laughs> but I, I felt like it was just like, well, and, I, and this will lead into my, my article that I read for this week for my book report, um, but I, I thought it was like, it was actually pretty fun for a story about war. Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of war in it, really.
0: No, it's really not about that. I, I, I've got some things to say about the use of violence in it, but this is thoroughly not a story about war. In a really interesting way, although it might seem that because it centers around the Pugachev Rebellion, but like many good war stories, it's about um, the human elements going on in between these um, difficult times, difficult things that are happening around them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I want to hear what you have to say about the use of violence or the not use of violence.
0: So I I read this interesting. I, when I was reading this, I. My, myself, when I'm looking at this, the thing that interests me is the relationship between Pugachev and, and Peter. As, as Because even though the early language used is very much what you'd kind of expect from a soldier of empire, he really finds himself identifying with Pugachov and mm-hmm. uh, in many ways really begins to admire the man, which I think is interesting. That kind of changes his perspective on a lot of things. And that's, that's a really interesting turn of, of character which happens. But uh, related to that... Is this article, Alexander Pushkin's The Captain's Daughter, a, politi- a poetics of violence by Alexander Gross, okay. which theorizes that violence in The Captain's Daughter is a way for Pushkin to talk about the use, the, the existence of violence in his own time? Um, he ties it specifically to anxieties or thoughts that Pushkin may have had around the Decemberist. Uprising or the Decemberist revolt, which Pushkin was not uh, involved in, and the Decemberist revolt was like in the mid 1820s. A series of of 1825. Russian officers. 1825. That date, baby. <laughs> I need to remember it. Try to uh, try to take control of the Russian Empire following the death of Alexander the uh, First. Pushkin himself was not uh, associated with them, but he was friends with some of the Decemberists, and, and himself was not always on the on the fun side of the Russian of the Russian Empire so he and following that he was watched more closely by the government definitely so Gross ties this kind of anxiety of violence in his own era to the place that violence plays in in this novel and he argues that this is almost a way for Pushkin to write about um, the worries and anxieties over violence in his own era using an interesting transformation so the violence in in the Captain's Daughter is not really, even though it, it's a violent era, it happens, but it's almost more symbolic in a way. So take the, take for example, both sides do violence. You've got the violence done by the Russian soldiers. They they torture, although uh, Peter says, "Oh yeah, it's kind of barbaric," but back in those days, we didn't really question it. So they they do torture people. Uh, they will they do commit as we see later on. They they commit hangings, um, as well as Pugachev. He when he arrives and he comes to the fortress, he hangs the officer class there so there's there's a violence that's happening all around there so that, so what ties all the forces together here is a sense of violence now that's important because interestingly Pukachov in in legitimacy in this context of, of governance or taking control has to come from this position of czar it, that that's like that is the the title itself is what brings you legitimacy as a ruler so Pukachov is not just a leader of a, of a rebellion Pugachev is a pretender to the throne he's saying oh I'm I'm the, that czar you thought died, and I'm actually the legitimate czar that should be on the throne. Even though he is a pretender, you could look at it, it as like a substitution for the place of the czarist uh, or the czarist governance. And in, in the commonality of violence between the actual czarist government and the, the Pugachev the uprising, violence of the Russians is, not, is kind of justified, whereas the violence of Pugachev is not, until um, Peter becomes more ingrained with it or becomes closer to Pugachev and at that point the place of violence he becomes a little bit more horrified or a little bit more thoughtful about the violence done by not only Pugachev but his own side later on they come across uh, some several hanged men who had been hung by the Russian army and uh, just like when Pugachev is is hanging the officer class he cannot tear his eyes away and he feels that he needs to witness this so in in putting Pukachov, as a sort of pretender to the Tsarist, but still equating him with the Tsarist autocracy, the place and the presence of violence in life that that comes from all around is kind of a, could be read as a, or at least Gross reads it as a, I don't know, meditation of violence and of in governance or the violence of governance upon people in his own time the way that that exists all around, not just in times of war, but just as, as a method of control, which is is always present there.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of scholarship that I was reading about violence. It was actually really interesting because I didn't, I didn't. I didn't think about it because there's a couple ways you could view it. I think, and there was this one book uh, that I'm <laughs> happened to cherry pick a quote from, mm. uh, or a quote about the book. I didn't, you know, read the whole book for this episode, uh, but it's it's called Plotting History: The Russian Historical Novel in the Imperial Age. It was written by a professor Dan Ungurianu. I believe he's at Vassar College right now, and uh, the Kind of summation of part of the book, at least that I was reading from another author, was that uh, he reads the novel's erasure of explicitly depicted violence as a form of therapy, actually for Pushkin, uh, that he's using it to suppress, like you mentioned, his personal anxieties about the fear of well, a, a peasant uprising, um, which was it was an interesting thought, but I liked what uh, the article that I kind of ended up diving deep on this week it was called between nation and empire alexandra pushkins the captain's daughter by irina anisimova and she's kind of pushing back on this this erasure of violence she kind of hones in on that and she's noting like like you mentioned which i think this is a really big part of this book is the conflict between the sense of nation and the sense of empire and she notes how pushkin creates this sense of hybrid identity for the main character where like you said, he kind of I mean, he's kinda of hanging out with Pugachev for like most of the book. Like he's probably I, I don't know, if it wasn't for the sense of duty that he's bound by, he would probably be well, I don't I don't know if I could say he'd side with Pugachev, but he's definitely sympathetic to him and to the Cossacks for sure. And Ismova says that she doesn't view Pushkin's erasure of this violence as an attempt to preserve this sort of existing colonial order at the time. But she is envisioning it as a way that Pushkin tries to form an imagined national community. Yes, once more, we must talk about Benedict Anderson and his imagined (laughs) communities. I cannot run away from it as much as I try.
0: Um, (laughs) It's even worse because I also reference that a lot. So you also can't get away from it as long as you know me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's fine. This was like an older article. So it makes sense that it was actually formed like kind of the backbone of the analysis. It was was a good article. I, I liked it for... Kind of thinking about this a little bit more, a little bit more deeply. Um But there is kind of some distinctions in the differences between Anderson and Pushkin, because Anderson suggests that social tensions and conflicts uh, tend to be represented as familial disputes in national history, is not as actual violence, and that does hold true, I think, or as Anisimov analyzes in Pushkin's novel. Uh, Pugachev acts as a father figure to the main character, Peter, and Catherine the Great acts as a mother figure to the titular captain's daughter, and so you have these kind of family analogies and metaphors constant throughout the book, actually, and that's kind of what this article is analyzing, is the use of that metaphor and how it works in creating this imagined national community of being just Russian. Um... And so it is an erasure in some form, of course. Um, but she she notes that the a- Anderson says that uh the focus of a lot of these books are um he says he says interracial fraternal relationships meaning horizontal relationships, as in relationships between like a sense of brotherhood, whereas in this book the familial disputes uh tend to be vertical and parental so there's like a kind of difference with that and so there's this really big tension again between nation and empire because peter is bound by this vertical sense of empire despite the fact that he sympathizes with the sort of horizontally aligned cossacks i guess um, i mean Pugachev is shown to be like far more i would say democratic in his decision making everything he does is very kind of Down to earth when he's conversing with the Cossacks and whatnot. So it's a, I I don't know, it's a very interesting thought. And I really like to think about that.
0: Yeah, that is what really drew me to this novel as we were reading it, in the way that it brings a real sense of understanding, like empathy growth. Even though Peter doesn't have a clear character arc, the way that people around him are represented in him grows so much that it makes it really interesting that at the beginning of the book he is a naive young boy who is just you know the, the, when he's picking up the vagrant on the side of the road it's really he's, he's not thinking too much about the people around him he feels threatened by all the things around him doesn't find too much about the people or who he's staying with just kind of looks at them as like oh these like distant Cossacks and like the other Russian officers when he's at Belogorsky, he looks down upon the Cossack soldiers and they're you know they make fun of them to their face and when they believe that some of them have gone over to Pugachev, they they find one man who's been delivering notes and they are getting ready to torture him. And he's they're very it's it they're very much even people who he's around, the Cossacks, are very much an other. Whereas as he spends more time with Pugachev, the rebellion becomes less of an other and more of just um, you know, just other people who are who are fighting, who I happen to be fighting that I don't necessarily have. You know, in his view, he doesn't like have a beef with them really. I mean, when he sees the the leader of the Cossack forces who had betrayed them, he's he knows he's happy to see him. Or when he's saying that Pugachev, like you said, he's Pugachev is shown to be quite fair and democratic. When his his lieutenants are dealing with him, they all talk to him like they're his friends. And they they challenge him, and he doesn't push back on them. He he will agree or disagree. Or even when we he later on Peter is asking Pugachev for his help, Pugachev has two advisors and the advisors kind of fight among themselves. One of them is, is saying, oh, this is a spy. And the other guy's like, no, you like, you're, you're just want to slip more throats. And like even within them, they, they're not in accord or they can have different personalities. And the breadth of, of personhood is so much expanded in the way that he just—in just acknowledging it by experiencing it more. And I think later on, he, he writes—and um, I don't know if this—I I wouldn't ascribe this specifically to Pushkin, but it's interesting in its framing. He, in, in chapter 13, uh, Pushkin writes— or Pushkin as Peter writes, God forbid that we should see such a Russian rebellion so senseless and merciless again. It's interesting that the framing here is not as, you know, empire versus these, these other, these Cossacks, these ethnic minorities, you know, these these pretenders to the throne, but that this is a set of the Russian populace who's rebelling against another set of the r- Russian populace. It is they're all contained under one identity, which I think you might apply to the, this idea of family, which you've talked about.
1: Yeah, I think actually the real victory of the book is not the the triumph of the Russian army over Pugachev's rebellion, because that's that's kind of almost I mean, he the narrator describes what happens, but it's almost just kind of alluded to. It's not really a valiant description of the battle. It was more of an inevitable like, yeah, of course, the Russian Empire, which the army outnumbers you, you know, a gajillion to one if it wanted to was going to crush this rebellion once it finally all got there. Um, I think the real triumph of the book is, like you were saying, the Peter-Pugachev relationship. And as I mentioned earlier, Pugachev not being necessarily a, you know, like a historically, a figure that is loved throughout official histories and literatures for Pushkin to give him uh, such a nuanced retelling is interesting. Like, yes, of course there is the violence of, Battle and all of this other stuff, but there's also a pretty like I said a pretty nuanced understanding of uh, morals and right and wrong you, you know you could kind of make that argument like when he uh, saves the captain's daughter from Schwabren. yeah that's you know that's cool, but uh, you know on on the other hand, his troops also did you know pillage and rape the whole fortress, so you know some good right a lot of bad <laughs> uh but you know he's he's he, i think that by by minimizing like you were saying by minimizing uh, the violence that is constantly around uh the people that were involved in this it allows you to kind of see uh the humanity of individuals in these situations that's one way that you could potentially come away from it
0: yeah, I, th- I think that the place of violence is important here because this is another point that Alexander Gross makes in um, *A Poetics of Violence that uh, Pushkin also wrote a, a, more of a history about this. I think it's A History of the Pugachev Uprising is what it's called. I think that's, I think that's the name. I'll, I'll put the exact name. It, it's something to that effect. But that one, because this was quite a violent conflict, does not shy away from that at all. And it, it contains, as Gross points out, scenes of similar violence, but nowhere in The Captain's Daughter does it achieve the same graphicness that uh, is sometimes characteristic of the, the historical piece that Pushkin wrote on it so it, it, it is interesting it's something to pay attention to I don't know if I want to point you in one way or the other say this is what Pushkin meant to do by this but I think it's something that should be called attention to that this, that, um, the, this depiction of violence although it's present and is oppressive at times is not nearly to the degree that it could have been and maybe would have been almost more historically accurate to portray it as such
1: it's interesting, and then the topics of violence, obviously interesting, and then coloniality again, I think it's it's really, it was just, it was really fascinating the way that I thought Pushkin used a lot of folk songs and different poems to kind of start off each of the chapters, and I, I if I'm not mistaken, I don't think that all of them were from, like, core central Russian uh, texts like some of them some of the poetry of course was uh, but some of it was just kind of like uh, folk songs that you know again if I'm not mistaken could be claimed by some of these like peripheral groups that were part of the Pugachev rebellion so the way that he kind of starts and frames his chapters with the uh, peripheral groups but at the same time encompassing it in an imperial narrative is kind of interesting Mm. uh it's really interesting to think of like kind of just this as like a work like what is this is this like it's not an imperial apology totally it's almost a dream or like fetish of what like the empire could be you know Catherine the great just looking after all the poor orphans and whatnot but obviously (laughs) that's not at all how it ended up uh you know working and so there's just like you know it, it kind of pulls you one way and then tugs you back the other it's like really quite interesting i thought in yeah. terms of like the composition
0: that that idea of it, it is almost a dream a dream of like a more ideal not not perfect one obviously that's rife with division but one that's not not fair but has a sense of that someone cares about you because of course as you've alluded to maria goes to catherine the great who personally protects peter and gives maria uh, wealth in fact uh, it, the book ends not on Peter marrying down in, in terms of social class as he was expected but in, in fact marrying up with marrying Maria who is now under the personal uh, personally being taken care of by the empress by, by the Tsarina herself and it's a very hopeful in that sense that it's almost <laughs> like I, I don't even know how to read that because it is hopeful and it is optimistic in its ending, that everyone works out okay and everyone ends up happy and married and having many kids and their generations living on.
1: Yeah, he imbues both the Russian Empire and Pugachev himself with this sense of morality that unites them both. And I think in that sense, that's kind of what Anisimova was saying, where he is trying to create this, this imagined community where there's this sense of, I guess you could say there's a sense of morality that, you know, Find some of these groups that they could you know come together and form a one identity uh, if you could just forget about a lot of the violence
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, i I have a question. What do you think about that ending? where you have a part a chunk of theoretically a chunk of chapter thirteen, which is a lot more action packed than the rest of the novel, where Peter saves his parents and Maria and Robert is finally faces a sword of justice for what he's done. Um, ending the novel instead of the actual end of of Peter and Maria's life. What do you, how do you think about that?
1: Uh, I think as we were talking about minimizing violence, I think that's editorially probably what this is. Mm. It, it's not really an action book. It doesn't need to be. It doesn't need this chapter. Yeah. Uh, it could have it. It would be fine. I mean, you get enough action with things like the duel being kind of drawn out a little bit, and you get you know some battle stuff and whatnot, but. I I don't know how much it really would would help overall. I think it would have been fine as it stood. I think it would be fine if you wanted to read the couple extra ten pages. I, I don't know. What did you think about it?
0: It, hmm, I almost don't know how to read it because the tone almost feels totally different. I mean, going from a much more almost meditative piece, when violence happens, it's something that is watched upon too. Now, um... Peter and his father both brandishing pistols and in, in a burning building and shooting their way out. I mean, that just has a completely different tone to me. Um, I, I don't even know how to approach it in some ways.
1: Yeah, it's weird. It's like you you understand why it wasn't published, right? Like, yeah. And that's okay, I think.
0: But I think it is an interesting place. Actually, I, I said the podcast was, I, I was not entirely clear when, when the editor writes this, when, like, oh, this was included. Is that actually, was that originally published like that? Or is that like, oh, this is a fragment we have. And we we're including it in this new translation that we're releasing.
1: When it says unpublished edition of chapter thirteen? Yeah, I think it was as stated, I think he they probably found this later in scholarship and published it alongside with it for it to be more complete, but it wasn't published originally like this.
0: Uh that makes sense. And
1: <laughs> I think you can see why.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's
1: not bad. It's just like, you know, like you said, it doesn't really fit with the overall tone, probably.
0: Yeah, I think The very ending and it so the very ending takes the kind of how chapter 13 sort of had take some final chap, some final paragraphs from chapter 13 and integrates them in. And I, I think. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, it's it, if, it, if it had been an intended chapter like i oh this is part of chapter 13 but i'm going to put it after the actual ending of the story i think it has a nice narrative ending because then that end, narrative ending leaves a little bit open for like oh i i you know th- it had all worked out today but i had a dark feeling about the future but of course we already know what happens in the future um i think that would have been kind of a fun little narrative thing but that's obviously not what was intended or what happened there but um yeah it's a fun little. It could be a fun little storytelling thing if that's how you want to read it. If you want to go on reading it, but it 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 does feel very weird in comparison to everything else. I can see why it was not actually included.
1: Yeah, it is a little bit weird.
0: Yeah. Uh, is there anything else you really want to talk about?
1: No, that was it. I think we covered a lot.
0: Yeah. Um. I don't have anything else to say, but I do. I would say that I. I Peter the character is interesting and maybe one day we can come back and talk about that more i would recommend that if you are really interested in some of the scholarship we've been talking about also uh, maybe take a look at uh, Grinev the trickster reading the paradoxes of pushkins the captain's daughter and Grinev is is peter that's his um uh, familial name that is written by polina raccoon r-i-k-o-u-n which i'll also link in the show notes which proposes peter as a sort of trickster character um, which was an interesting interpretation of, of his characterization. And I liked it a lot, but it didn't really fit into this episode. But you should read it because I I thought it was interesting.
1: Cool. Well, thanks for that. And uh, I think before we totally wrap up, Cameron, I kind of know on a scale from one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you?
0: I am easily at like a five like your beer. Um, uh, This is yep. quite high ABV. And we've just been talking about authorship and all these i like talking about violence even in my own studies of political theory that's something i focus on so this is a this is exactly my jam i've been i've been drinking a lot as we're going along this has been an a plus time and i a plus a plus uh, uh, amount of beer for it how about you
1: <laughs> i'm probably also i'm probably about a six i i enjoyed nice. the story a lot i'm glad that i got to return to pushkin and i'm glad that i got to do a little bit more secondary scholarship on this second read around
0: nice well <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Matt, uh, speaking of intoxication, uh, what are we reading next episode?
1: Well, Cameron, we are going to be reading Morphine by Mikhail Bulgakov. Uh, I know we just did Heart of the Dog not too long ago, but we're coming back for a little bit of a short story here because, um, you know, Catherine's Daughter was supposed to be a short story, but then I forgot <laughs> that it was a whole book in a collection <laughs> that I have. So it, you know, it, it deceived me. So now we're going to do a real short story because I feel like it's been, you know, yeah it's been a little while. We need a little we need a little short story action before we gear up for some of the stuff that we're doing in the fall And whoa baby are we doing a lot in the fall And if you if you, dear listener are planning on reading along with us, be sure to pick up your copy of our books through our affiliate links on our website tipsytolstoy.com. We earn a little bit of money from each qualifying purchase and it is much appreciated.
0: Yes, it keeps, it helps keep your favorite podcast uh, paying for our website, uh, music, other sort of things that are less fun to talk about, and most importantly, the beer. So
1: so get on it. Get on hey. it. <laughs> hey. Well, before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. We've got Drew, Jeff, Janice, and Emily, Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Irini, Paige, Darren, Larkin, Lou, Brandon, Allison, Gary, Cole, Daniel, Jack, Lucy, Alex, and Roland. Podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at patreon.com tipsytolstoy.
0: The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at tipsytolstoypodcast or join our email list on our website tipsytolstoy.com
1: you'll hear from us again soon